Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's a special, special day because you're joining me on the Untitled Banter podcast, the so-called UBP, UBP, UBP. How are you doing? Scott Telford, it's always a pleasure <laughs> to be on this show. I look forward to it every single time. Jules, unfortunately, can't because I'm very selfish and I just love answering like these questions. I think you get a lot of good questions on this show mm-hmm, and I'm mm-hmm. really buzzing to do it today. I tell you what, we've got some genuinely incredible questions. I'll try and get through. We always say we'll try and get through as many as we can and then me and Jules ramble so much that we get through about three. But I have <laughs> faith that we can get through at least four. So we'll see how we go. Um, but yeah, massive, massive thank you to everybody for sending in their questions. Like I said, genuinely really cool topics and we'll get through as many as we can. So, um, first question from Honest NPC, who says, what does AAA gaming even mean these days? For me, it's a big budget title that plays it safe. It seems the indie space is the place for gameplay innovation. What do you guys think? That is very interesting because I was trying <laughs> to wrangle myself the other day trying to figure out what exactly is like the in vogue AAA genre right now. Right. Because, you know, in the late 2000s, it was military shooters. It was first person online games. Then it was open world games. And now it's kind of like, is it just a like, menagerie of everything? It is. It's a menagerie of everything. But when it comes to just kind of defining what a AAA game is, mm-hmm. for me, it absolutely is what they've just said there. It's something big budgeted. It's a familiar genre and something that mostly plays is it safe? I would say, yeah, it's graphics first. It's something that's trying to convince you based on presentation and aesthetic rather than innovation in gameplay mechanics. I'll tell you what I think the invoke thing is from the industry's point of view is four-player co-op stuff because every trailer that gets me excited and then they zoom out and there's three more people standing next to them. No, I don't want that. I want solo stuff. I'm never never going to care about a four-player co-op game. I don't have three other people to play it with, for one. No, I'm with you there, man. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% with you there. Like Every time something says that it's designed to be played is either a single-player game or with three other people, mm-hmm. I always do like the Thor Ragnarok. Is it, though? Like, is it really, uh, Has it really been designed with a single-player in mind as much as it has the multiplayer aspect? I'm not sure. But mm-hmm. funnily enough, that is why I'm more open to Gotham Knights than I am some of the other right. games because I like the fact that that's just a two-player thing rather than, obviously, there's four characters 
characters in that game, but most of the missions seem to be designed either around a single person or two people. Mm-hmm. In that, I can get away with a little bit more. I like the idea. I saw the uh, the dev diary uh, video that they just did about the fact that even when you're in co-op, you might not even know that there's someone else in your game world, and they could be like on a different wing of the city doing their own thing, and then they just swing by and help you out for a bit, and then they go off and do other stuff. And I was like, I like that idea. That's kind of what Watch Dogs initially was going for, like that idea of sort of drop-in, drop-out co-op or whatever you want to call it. Um, but you don't like Dark Souls. Like I end up Dark Souls will give you like a, a flag on screen sometimes, but like sometimes time passes, you don't realize there's someone hiding in your game or whatever. I quite like the idea of playing with that stuff. Totally. Uh, yeah, like the sort of asynchronous, I guess you could mm. maybe describe it as, where someone's just kind of like in your world. I always thought that was kind of neat. I'm yet to see a game that properly pulls it off, admittedly. Right. You know, I really love the way Dark Souls does it, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, but with Watch Dogs, it was a better idea than it was better implementation, I, I tell you what. thought. Yeah, no, I agree. I think what I do love, and I'm only thinking this because I've been listening to the Shredder's Revenge soundtrack all morning, but I do love that when someone joins your game in Shredder's Revenge, they just like swing in. Like, it's, you don't have to restart <laughs> the level. You don't have to do anything. They can just join your game and just become one of the other turtles helping you out or whatever it is. Um, I'm a fan. The thing is with that, right, I, I get such social anxiety, even when <laughs> a stranger who might not be using the mic joins my game. that it almost makes me not enjoy the whole experience because I right. don't want to let them down and I don't want to be embarrassing in front of them. <laughs> I don't know how I could possibly be embarrassing in Shredder's Revenge. But what if I am? What if I leave this person with a negative impression of me? That's well, what I always think. I think all the, I mean, in that game, all you need to do is punch some faces. That, that, they're just there to eat pizza and punch faces. You can't, you can't go that wrong. Scott, this is the thing, man. You're talking to the number one bottler in England right now. <laughs> Anytime I'm under any bit of pressure. The brewer. The in a game. Certainly <laughs> I've got me straight of bros and I'm bottling them up. Uh, because, man, I just I buckle under the pressure and I, I, I can't perform as well as I want to perform when <laughs> other people are there. When uh, Shredder's around. In every aspect of life. But, yeah, yeah. that certainly is uh, it's it's something that scares me. The thing with all the indie stuff is that, funnily enough, I was just talking to you the other day about doing a video on this, which I think we'll do on Monday, um, about how there's a selection of games that I kind of feel like restore people's faith in, are restoring people's faith in the industry right now. A lot of people talking about Rollerdrome, a lot of people talking about Cult of the Lamb, uh, Midnight Fight Express's fighting mechanics are incredible. I was playing Inscription on PS5 last night. They are all mid to low tier uh, indie games that have sort of, you know, they're very gameplay forward. They're very innovative. They combine a bunch of different genres or a bunch of different influences. And I think it's just that it's just that reminder that the industry can be this really good looking, fun, gameplay forward um, experience that it doesn't need to be a Saints Row or even yeah. The Last of Us Part 1 for as immaculate as, as that is and I was playing that till like 2 in the morning last night I don't you know that you know what that is like you know what you're getting and but you don't know what Tony Hawk's with a shotgun feels like and it's That's like true. stuff like that is uh, is something that I'm always going to uh, point towards so I feel like the indie space especially over the last few years the budgets have got higher the production values have got stronger um, and that's cool and I think that makes stuff more recommendable so I do think the indie space is very much the how the 2000s felt in terms of the variety of genres and game mechanics and everything of the modern day yeah, it's so much more experimental, and I, I would echo what you said there about uh, you know AAA games, especially being so familiar. I mm. think what defines a AAA game is a homogeny when it comes to its structure and 
particularly its controls. You know, we've talked about mm. control schemes before, but it's always refreshing to jump in an indie game and kind of have to learn how it plays. And yeah. you can't just get by on muscle memory a lot of the time. You have to learn. Uh, it sounds so basic, right? But you have to learn what each button does. Mm-hmm. Whereas I can jump into any, you know, open world third person AAA action game and I could probably just play it fine based on my part, knowledge yeah. of other games and how they also play because they follow such a familiar template. Yeah, I definitely echo that. That's what I loved about uh, Midnight Fight Express. Like, having finished that game, I think I love that game. There's a few levels in it that you can tell. Obviously, it was made by one dude, which is an incredible feat, but there's some stuff that I just think should have been playtested a bit more, like like the there's a motorbike chase that's horrendous or whatever. Um, but that game, you know, has a, not a unique, but a very like individual feeling combat system like it's 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 borrowing the idea of counters on the y button from arkham but like everything else is, is nigh on done with environmental attacks and you're rolling to pick stuff up and then throwing it at dudes and you're doing finishers and like it's just it built it feels different it feels distinguishable from the arkham um franchise and it feels distinguishable from platinum game stuff as well and so even something like that where i was like if you need the if you need a third person action game that the melee focused game that feels differentiable um you know in this year we've got sifu and midnight fire express and they both feel distinguished. And I'm just like, yeah. the indie space is where it's at. So like, yeah, I, I would massively uh, back that. Um, next question from Jacob Sawyer. Can you settle an argument for myself and my friend Mr. Norris, the champion, apparently? Which is the better fantasy world slash franchise, Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones? And is it unreasonable to view Jared Leto as a bad actor despite his Oscar winning role? Scott, I'm going to let you go first on this because I know you have been watching with, uh, waiting with bated breath for Rings of Power today as well as watching House of the Dragon. So with that being fresh in your mind, well, I think, what's your gut reaction to that? Well, it's easily Lord of the Rings. I mean, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even have Game of Thrones without Lord of the Rings. You wouldn't have, uh, George Martin wouldn't, uh, he he fully admits he's a huge Tolkien, uh, Tolkien head um, and everything in Game of Thrones and Westeros is very much, you know, directly inspired by um, Tolkien and Middle Earth and everything. So, I am. Um, I'm. If you're going to compare the two, I'm going to go archetypal wins that out, and just like the, the, by sheer virtue of what Tolkien accomplished, for me it has to be Lord of the Rings. Um, I do love Game of Thrones wider lore, and funnily enough, I was watching a lore video on Game of Thrones last night, and um, that was fleshing out all the different regions of the world uh, from the book that George Martin put out. It's called like the World of Ice and Fire, um, where it's all about like like sort of his take on ostensibly like Japan or his his take on various parts of Europe and everything, and all the different traditions and rituals and and um different factions that exist there and that stuff is fascinating a lot of the general conversation that came out of that book was like oh so westeros is just the most boring part of that entire world there's so much <laughs> more you could do and um, kind of reminded me of tamriel like a lot of us really wanted like an eastern themed elder scrolls or something like that um but yeah for this it has to be lord of the rings i just think rings is the template for a reason yeah, I think, you know, you can probably call me David Byrne because I'm a Tolkien head as well. You know, I'm really uh, into Lord of the Rings, like, especially when I was younger, man. Like, mm. that was such a defining part of my childhood, you know, growing up with the movies, oh, especially. Totally. I'm not going to pretend, you know, I've read uh, the books or anything like that. I'm talking purely <laughs> the films right I've now in the, the world Hobbit. that they've spawned. Have you really? Yeah. How is the, how is the Hobbit? Because everyone really recommends good. The Hobbit. Yeah. yeah, it's great. It's nice and short. It's not going to take up your entire life. Like, I no. really like it. 100%. And I just think, yeah, they're, they're, they're really fine in my um opinion like the margins of which i prefer but the lord of the rings just wins out because it has that childhood uh, mm. attachment to me that said though i i love the idea of game of thrones in theory like i love right. the idea of the books especially i've tried to read that first one so many times and just can never get through it because it is so dense and it is mm. so rich but i love talking about both which is quite uh 
unnatural for mm. something that I'm not otherwise deeply passionate about. I just think, like you said, you know, there's they've got such expansive world building, mm-hmm. and I love the way that you know Game of Thrones subverts the tropes of fantasy that were in part established by Tolkien's books and stuff. Well, that's the thing. Like, so I, I, I think they're almost two sides of the same coin, right? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It depends what shade of fantasy you want. If you want dark fantasy, it's not Lord of the Rings. If you want archetypal, old school, high fantasy, it is Lord of the Rings. If you want something like, like you said, it's more uh, guts and gore and more heavily inspired by like medieval history or whatever it is than it's thrones but I think they, they satisfy two different things but if I'm going to compare them um, in terms of which which fantasy world is better fantasy being one of the key terms um, then it's going to be uh, Lord of the Rings when you come down on Jared Leto as an actor I, for me that's the only good thing I like about Jared Leto I used to love 30 Seconds to Mars back in the day but <laughs> it's been a long time since they were doing the rounds Hey, if a couple of uh, 30 Seconds to Mars tracks came on in the club, I absolutely would uh, shout them out. Honestly, man, Jared Leto is an actor that, when I was younger, I used to adore, particularly because of his performance in in, uh, Requiem for a Dream. I thought he was, like, incredible in that. But the older I get, the the less convinced I am by him. (laughs) And even though he has, of course, won an Oscar, I would argue that bad actors have won Oscars in the past, and the Oscars (laughs) aren't always uh, spot on with their choices. I think... I think I w- kind of want to see him sort of drop the ego and just do something that isn't necessarily self-serving. Like, I want to see him in a really good supporting role again, because now, you know... Like Lord of, of War. Lord of like, War is brilliant. And he's I've not that. seen Lord of War. Tell oh, me more mate. about Lord of War. Lord of War's got my favourite opening sequence in a film. It, oh, it, it, well, young me thought it was brilliant anyway, um, where it's all about the production of a bullet from, like, nothing to being fired to killing someone, and the camera follows the bullet the whole way through. Um, Lord of War is a Nick Cage movie about a guy yes. who's just selling uh, armaments and ammunition and everything to all these different um, sides of a war so that he massively benefits or whatever and Jared Leto is his uh, partner in that I need to see that I've seen the cover of it so many times but Mm -hmm. it's one of those Nick Cage movies that I I desperately wanted to see and then just never got around to yeah, a Nick Cage movie that's not a Nick Cage movie. Like, when you right. say that label, people think wacky, craziness, I'm a vampire, whatever. It's it's largely played straight. He's actually just doing acting in this one. Totally. I think... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Although he did do quite a lot of that back in the day with, you know, like, mm-hmm. Leaving Las Vegas and other movies the that I'm sure he made era. around that time. No, Jared Leto is someone that I can't in- and increasingly cannot get away with anymore. <laughs> and it sucks because I used to have a lot of affection for him as an actor when I was growing up in mm-hmm. movies that I really loved but now every time I see him in something it's almost like you know when you see like a Netflix original and that stamp (laughs) makes you wary if Jared Leto is now in something Mm -hmm. I always think Ooh, what's gone wrong to have him be involved? <laughs> You're not wrong. I think for me, it was like, it was that, be- I've just had to Google it. It was the Beautiful Lie album. That was the album, the one with right. the tack on and whatever. That was my only time that I really cared about Jared. I didn't really care about him, but I was like, oh, I know his name from that. That and Lord of War. That's my that's my um, my space that I can allocate to Jared Lowe. Um, next question from Dylan, who says, if there was a Marvel game based on a female character, because there hasn't been a solo female-led superhero game since the Catwoman movie tie-in, who would you love to see and why? I could see a Black Widow game styled after Hitman. Now, that's a hell of a show. Um, would also love anything Scarlet Witch or Storm. Um, my, <laughs> but I would, I would back, um, yeah, I'd back all that stuff. A Black Widow, like, assassination game with all her gadgets and everything would be really cool. Especially Sick. if you could do, um, like, melee CQC style stuff. If you get caught, maybe you can get out of it. Like, the way the Spinner Cell um, double agent could on the previous gen, where you hit a few yeah. buttons, you can do some reversals. Tell you what, right? As I can shout this out, 
there's like seven people who played the Mission Impossible tie-in game, not the N64 <laughs> one, but the one that came out in like 2008. It was called Rogue Mission or Rogue Nate. It's not the movie, but Rogue Agent or something. Yeah. Um, that game was just a Splinter Cell ripoff, but they added like melee, like more melee to it, and you could do a move where you run at a dude and you jump into a flying kick, and the camera like does a spin, <laughs> and I was like, this is perfect. That game never gets talked about, but that's what should be in the Black Widow game. That's cool, man. I think I think if, if I was um, an investor and that was your pitch, I think I would absolutely put all of my money in that. I actually think Dylan might have uh, stolen my answer there because the Scarlet Witch game, I mm. think, would be incredible because Scarlet Witch's power set is just so like dynamic and powerful and cool to see visually mm. that I would want to see how that would um, play it. You know, I, mm. I, I don't know what the story would be, but I just think as a game and as a set of mechanics, there's so much you can do uh, with that character that would be like just really visually interesting. I would want a game that is half L.A. Noir, half ultimate, ultimate Hulk Ultimate Destruction and give me a She-Hulk game. Let me do nice. court case stuff. Let me do gathering evidence. Then give me like cool action sequences and being She-Hulk and whatever dialogue driven stuff maybe. And you can break the case or if that fails, you can go chase the dude down. I want to do that. Well, I would go one step further and just have a full L.A. Noir game with some fist <laughs> fights where you are uh, Jessica Jones. You know, you're oh, kind of like a, a, you know, a private detective. You're going around these, uh, you know, back streets and uh, dilapidated ruinous cities and trying to solve these crimes and mm -hmm. deal with your own personal demons. I think that would be neat. Yep. Also, I think considering that she was the um, highlight of the story in the Avengers game, like a Miss Marvel game. I was going to say cool. Kamala Khan, yeah. I, I, I think that, you know, she has such um, an endearing character, such a relatability in the same way that someone like Spider-Man has that I think yeah. just lends itself well to a really um, relatable narrative. So even though we kind of got that with the Avengers and that was the best part that game totally. i would love to see that kind of fleshed out more with uh better gameplay no man i was gonna say that like the because i remember like the the sandra sad uh, voicing kamala khan like that campaign is by far the best part of that game and as much as everyone poops on avengers rightfully so that campaign like at least her parts of it are genuinely really really, uh, really well done um next question from willie Array who says since josh is here what are the most contentious topics you guys mostly disagree on and why is returnal an amazing game p.s the dlc <laughs> is the most pure form to play that game but I don't understand a single thing about the plot. Now, me and Josh disagree on a lot of different things. Mostly, nearly every day, we, we type to each other classic us on this because we disagree yet again. And so all I did to, to bring together a list of stuff that we disagree on was I just searched Slack for kills me. And then I just looked at <laughs> every time that we've sent this to each other. Um, so I don't know if anything pops into your head. I've got six major topics that we can get to, or you can lead if you'd like. Um, God, yeah, go and kick us off because there is there is so much that we disagree <laughs> on, and it is comical, and we touch upon a lot of it on these podcasts. Yes. But it uh, anything that you can imagine, Scott and I disagreeing on, we probably <laughs> disagree on when it comes to pop culture, especially. Yes, that's why it makes it all the more special when we do agree on something. Like Better yes. Call Saul, one of the best TV shows of all time. That means more to me and JP um, when those things land. But speaking of stuff that we disagree on, the first thing that I wrote down here was that lyrics don't matter in songs because I knew you'd have a reaction to that <laughs> oh man oh, this is uh, this was a big one I remember yeah. Scott telling me one day that 
Uh, just yeah, like exactly what you said there. Yeah. Lyrics don't matter. I don't that care what anyone's saying in songs, as long as the melody is good, as long as like the instruments, yep. uh, tight and spot on the composition works for you. You don't care. Whereas I am the exact opposite, <laughs> where I'm like lyrics first, and the music could just be someone tapping their drumstick on a bin lid, and I would be fine <laughs> as long as it's poetic and it resonates with me. I think that's uh, that's definitely one of the biggest ones because mm-hmm. I just. This maybe shows how small my echo chamber is, but I just sort of never heard of anyone discarding lyrics in that way before. Well, I'm and I totally respect it. I totally yeah, respect it. I'm yeah. obviously being incendiary for the sake of getting your reaction, but this came from when we started talking about synthwave music a good few years ago. Anything that's fully instrumental, and, and you said, I just can't, that just doesn't do it for me because I want some lyrical component to the music, whereas I just don't care. I just don't care. Like you could be singing about popcorn for all I care, as long as the <laughs> melody's fun. Um, it's just, I just don't care. So it's not that like lyrics aren't brilliant. I love Zach De La Rocha, um, Tim McElrath from Rise Against and Zach's from uh, Rage Against the Machine. I have my favorite lyricists and everything. And it's not like I don't have favorite passages or favorite lyrically driven songs, but I don't care. Like I ultimately right. don't care. Um, they're great. But like I love synthwave music. I absolutely love thrash metal, big screamy music. Like, you know, I've been listening to the newest uh, Motionless and White album and I don't care what that dude's saying. Like I just care yeah. about the big melodic choruses and um, the instrumentation, the breakdowns and everything else. So that will be my one. Um, next one down. And again, incendiary reactions are very much what I'm going for. Um, is your whole thing about you won't watch a TV show unless you know how it ends. Because <laughs> this absolutely breaks me because you read so many books, you play games, but you won't watch TV. Here's the thing, right? I need to clarify that. It's not that I need to know how it ends. Right. I need to know that it ends. I need there to be an end point in sight. For instance, right. we were just mentioning the House of the Dragon and uh, Rings of Power shows. And while those are appealing to me on paper, there is no chance that I'm going to be watching those from episode one because I don't know if the time investment I'm going to give them uh, it will pay off in a satisfying conclusion. Right. You know, like Game of Thrones infamously did not. The only shows that have ever taken a risk on day one have been um, Supernatural back in the day, <laughs> uh, The Walking Dead, uh-huh. which it lost me after like season 10. In Better Call Saul was the only show that I've ever jumped into day one. And what did that, you say uh, when you finished Better Call Saul that fun. that was incredible? Absolutely. But just think about how many TV shows come out every year and the the hit <laughs> ratio uh, and how small the hit ratio would be if I just delved into them but all the like you do. it's the journey, not the destination. I don't think that's true. I don't. I need to know <laughs> that it's going to be worth. That it's going to be worth it. It's for instance, right? You know, mm-hmm. everyone keeps telling me to watch Succession, and I'm sure right. Succession is one of the best shows ever. But so what right. if Scott Tilford? It doesn't stick the landing, and but then I get in the- now, ride this hype, and then we have two seasons that are just meh. But well, well, Succession's an interesting example because I've watched all of Succession as much as I can. I don't care anymore, and I won't be watching any more of it. I've got enough. <laughs> from it from the fact I forget when I dropped off but I was just like I've got enough from this like it's the arcs have wrapped up the show Walking Dead the show's still going but it's wrapped enough for me I can step off this train what you've just said there is <laughs> what I go to sleep fearing for uh, with the exception of the Walking Dead this is why you finish Devil May Cry 2 because this you, can't is just, you can't just let go no, I can't just pick and choose. I can't just like, you know, you know, some people will say, I think you might have even said this to me before when starting certain shows, you know, say, they say, don't start from season one. It's not great. Jump in at season two, jump in at season three. Oh, I'd have to go back and, and yeah. do it properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that makes me itch. 
a little bit because I'm like, why would I ever do that? If I'm Mm going to do something, I want to do it all Mm -hmm. and I want to kind of be in it. And that's kind of the same way I think for TV shows. There's such a demand. They demand so much of your time. They Mm -hmm. demand so much investment that I've got to be certain that they're going to be worth my time. There are a few things that I love more in this life than a shared conversation on an ongoing storyline that takes place week to week to week. I love the fan theory side of it. I love all the communal side of it, the social, the conversational side of it, everyone reacting to a plot twist in real time or whatever it is. You can't replicate that for me. And as much as it's like awesome to catch up on a show, it doesn't be it being done properly, quote unquote, when it's live, like the, the week to week stuff. I get that to an extent. It's just, again, I would go back to the hit ratio of that. For me, (laughs) how many of those shows exist that I would be so invested in that I would be checking the Reddit every single time? But you'd never know if you never watched them, though. Well, that's it. But Well, uh, that is it. That's the paradox. You would (laughs) never know. But I've had so many misses that I'm not inclined to even put myself out there Mm. in the same way. It's the same way with a game, right? I only want to play a game if I'm pretty certain... I'll beat it all. You know, I don't want to play 20 hours of a 40-hour game and put it down in the same way that I don't want to watch two seasons of a four-season show and never get back to it. That right. that that kind of behavior keeps me up at night. <laughs> Josh's eyes went wide as he delivered that line. Um, now, next one down. Again, incendiary reaction. Graphics don't matter. <laughs> this is insane, man. This is insane. And funnily enough, comes around to our discussions on The Last of Us Part 1, because yeah. obviously I love that game, because to me, graphics matter a lot. But to you, it's like, well, do they look the same? Do they look kind of similar enough to get the job it done? Could be, you send me the picture of the 8-bit mode, which is, I think that'll do the rounds when a lot of people will start unlocking it. But Last of Us Part 1, the remake, has a 8-bit mode, which changes the graphical presentation quite considerably. It's not 8-bit because it makes it look like PS1, but there's a lot of like old-school 8-bit sound effects and stuff. Um, I would much rather spend £70 on an old-school PS1 D-make of The Last of Us than £70 on an up look at these lighting effects and the rain looks more wet thing in 2022. I almost sent you a video from The a Last of Us Part 1 earlier on. A death <laughs> threat. I almost came around your house <laughs> threatened you. Recording your this in your backyard. Yeah. yeah. I almost Gus Fringed you. Uh, <laughs> no, I was going to say is I almost sent you a video from The Last of Us Part 1 uh, where it's Tess reacting to Marlene, right? And mm. she does this tiny little facial animation that when I was playing and reviewing the game, like, blew me away. But I right. realized it was the kind of granular reaction that you might have taken the mick out of and said, that's not worth £70. So I didn't do it in the end. I, th- I, I wouldn't have said it. Stuff. I would have, like, loved, I would have appreciated the fact that the facial animation is that well done. I just would have, it's a weird headspace for me because I talked to you about this when we started playing the remake together. Like, there's a death scene at the beginning of that game that you, if you've played The Last of Us a lot, which we have, we've played through it a lot, whether it's the original one, the remaster, or whatever. When you get to that scene, because they've up the facial animation so much and they've improved stuff, I get in this weird headspace of like, oh, that that's a better rec- that's a better rendered death, that's a better facial tick, that's a better nose crunch, that's a better eyebrow raise or whatever. It's not just experiencing it, it's not just playing it, and I don't like that. I don't like that granular, you know, like side by side. It's everything that we used to take the mick out of when it was like that was PC discourse, like on PC gaming. It was like gra- right. like graphic card comparisons, which is just modern gaming now, where you just compare a bunch of stuff and go, well, you know, if you zoom in enough, these blades of grass look better over here than they do there. Who cares? Like 
I do care because I want to get the best experience, but I really don't care at the core of just experiencing something that is meant to be an interactive medium, like gameplay forward, etc. I just... I can take anything. I can, Thomas was alone. Beautiful example that you don't need graphics whatsoever to tell a really good story um, or to write really good characters. And I think that's my ultimate thing. I, I don't care. I didn't need The Last of Us up or whatever visually, um, which is why I was more. I cared more about the gameplay side of it. But yeah, that's always my thing. You can give me a clump of pixels. And as long <laughs> as they run, like I'm, I care about performance. As long as they run enough, then that's more than enough for me. No, I, I do get that, to be fair. And like I say, I want to clarify that, you know, there have been games that are, you know, made by a couple of people that don't have the best graphics or intentionally have bad graphics that mm. I've totally loved. I don't need a game to have good graphics for me to love it. However, if you are one of those AAA games, especially, and you're going for the most opulent set of uh, features that you can possibly mm-hmm. get out of your uh, graphics engine, then I kind of want you to go all the way because it does have an, an effect on me. And yeah, you can pick out the kind of granularities of it. You can pick out, you know, specific eye movements that might have been added in or the mm-hmm. fact that the cartilage on someone's body it becomes see-through and it hits the light or something like that. And you can say, do we really need this? But for me, it's all of that stuff taken together. I do think it all has a cumulative effect when it's all on the screen at the same time. Mm. And that's when it kind of really resonates for me and it allows me a deeper level of immersion. It makes me feel like I'm living in that world more. And it makes me feel like the world is alive. You know, what my no. favorite thing about The Last of Us Part One is that it the characters feel alive and they always were emotive. But I think I said in my review, now it feels like they have life behind their eyes even, you know. It feels like I'm watching actual actors as opposed to the kind of uncanny valley uh, in-between liminal space that we had maybe in The Last of Us Part 1, you know, 2013. That's interesting. See, for me, I didn't. it's a longer conversation because I think for me, like, I never questioned the performance of anything in The Last of Us, like one of the reasons that that game landed so heavily with so many, made such big waves was because it nailed that stuff so well. Um, And even if I go further back, you know, like uh, Metal Gear Solid on the PS1, like I was fully invested in that game. I didn't care that Snake didn't have any eyes. He just had a couple of shaders for his eyes should be. Um, Fully invested in that. Before then, Final Fantasy, like, you know, text-based dialogue. Like, I just, I'm fully invested in that stuff regardless of how well it's rendered. The thing is, it's not to take away from the fact that they have rendered it incredibly well. It does add to the experience. It's just that question of necessity. And I think that that's, like, if we're going to talk about stuff that we um, we talk about that we disagree on, I don't like that uh, that whole wing of gaming that is just, oh, look, if you put the sun behind their earlobes, it changes <laughs> colour. Who the F cares? I just, it does, like... I guess you do, but like a lot of people do. do. And it's not, you know, it's not that I don't watch that and go, that's impressive, but it's pointless. I would rather you put your time into anything more gameplay based. Ah, see, yeah, when when it comes to like a case of it being a necessity, Mm. I agree that it's it's not a necessity for your game for it to look as high as The Last of Us Part 1 does. Mm. However, I saw, I was watching a a review um, by a channel called Writing on Games yes. about The uh, Last of Us Part 1, and they described it in, in, a, in a way that I was looking for when I was doing my review and didn't quite grasp, so that means they're much <laughs> better wordsmiths than I am. But they Massive described... Writing on Games. 100%. They described the, uh, the whole experience as like a... A, a boutique um, release, you know, it's kind right. of like when you buy a better television because you want to experience something at a higher resolution, and that doesn't fundamentally necessarily make a game 
better. You know, it doesn't add an extra point to its review score because you're getting the best version of it. However, I am one of those people who wants to get the best version you of You do things. love your black levels. And, and I certainly settings. do. I mean, HDR and all the nits and all of that <laughs> stuff. And I think that's kind of like how I view titles like The Last of Us Part 1. Like, it's not a necessity for every, everyone, mm. but it's people who like that kind of granularity and people who want that kind of extra level. I like that it's out there because of that, because it is a kind of uh, superfluous um, edition in a lot of ways, but it's one that's appreciated by people who are into that stuff. I feel like this happens quite a lot like across the board. It's that idea of, you know, do visuals affect storytelling? And can you see what someone's going for regardless of how well the visuals land? And I, I don't mind as long as you're not hinging an entire scene on, you know, oh my God, this this sunset is the thing that this couple shared and then you see it and it's terrible or whatever mm. it is. Like, it's not, unless you're literally ha- like hinging the story on it, it's very rare that an actual visual presentation is going to mean anything to me as long as it's performed well or has passion or soul and a purpose and whatever. So I think it's that thing. Um, and it's not that I, I mean, the thing is they're not maxims. Like, it's not that I don't play The Last of Us Part 1 and I, it, I am astonished by it. There's a lot of incredible effects in there. Um, but yeah, in terms of an overall, the way that I phrased that, I knew that would get us talking about it because I, like, I don't think Graphics matter personally; they don't to me. I uh, I can I can play Final Fantasy original right now, and it feels just as good. I'm not getting hung up on the the fact that they all look like Lego bricks having a, having a hanging out together. That's still totally fine to me. Yeah. Um, Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is brought to you by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it just makes hiring all in one place so easy because you just get unparalleled access to job seekers. Plus, listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash WCG. Just go to Indeed.com slash WCG right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash WCG. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. But yeah, it depends how much graphics get in the way, I guess, because I don't feel like graphics have ever got in the way for you before, but maybe they no. have. Right. No, that's it. Like, you know, I would never, like you said, play even something like Final Fantasy VII, the original, and get hung up on the graphics. It's mm. not a case of that at all. You know, I'm not criticizing something 
for having, you know, slightly subpar presentation. It's just a pure optional thing that I like to indulge in. And if it does have those kind of next-gen graphics, those next-level graphics, I will appreciate them. But, yeah, mm. I would agree if we're, you know, trying to get it down the middle <laughs> of this that they're not necessary. I just, mm. I, I do think they, en- they enhance an experience. They don't necessarily make an experience. I also think it's an assumption, which could be completely, well, likely is wrong, that if you took all the time that Naughty Dog put into The Last of Us 1 remake, and we know the whole, the whole story behind that, that it was a different studio and they took over and whatever, if they took that time and effort and resources and everything else and put it into developing the next big gameplay mechanic or the next gameplay forward idea from Naughty Dog as a team that that is a, a quote-unquote waste that they didn't do that like I don't fully think that but I think as a as a conversation that's interesting I would I would rather they did that um See? that you know if that was the two options I would rather they did that that is where we disagree. That mm. is where the, the classicus uh, sort of scenario comes in. Because <laughs> I'm like, I do think it's a worthy pursuit, all said and done. And right. I think, you know, it's such a different wing of game development anyway that you could I, you could argue that, you know, even if you took these developers off refining those graphics and, you know, took them off um, creating the art for someone's ear cartilage and put them on the next big mechanic, like, would that even work? Would there be too well, many cooks in the in kitchen? Respect, or I know what yeah. you mean, but yeah, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's like, they, you have to have the balance, I think, and especially when it comes to AAA games, which obviously trades so heavily on those uh, wow trailers. Yeah. The thing is as well, I do love that um, gaming overall can have that bar, that can have that spectrum of quality. I do love that. It's only really Naughty Dog and Rockstar that do this, that like they prioritize that level of visual fidelity. And Naughty Dog themselves say that they are perfectionists and they love doing this stuff. Um, which, like you said, it is a hell of a feat. It's a worthy pursuit. But yeah, I just, I just, I think it's interesting. I, like I said, they're not maxims. I'm not drawing conclusions. I think in terms of just conversations, I would prefer Naughty Dog work on the next thing they want to do. We collectively grew up with that insane arc of Crash to Jack and Daxter to Uncharted to Last of Us. What's next? That is infinitely more exciting. The last thing that we clash on and um, that you suggested yesterday when I said we were going to do this question, and um, which we'll not <laughs> dive into because this could be a <laughs> ten-hour conversation, is objectivism versus subjectivism. I don't know if you want to take that very quickly. Again, this is such a big topic that I'll try to not dive too deep right Mm. now. But yeah, we obviously, you know, as video game reviewers in a lot of ways, Mm. talk about uh, like uh, being objective versus being subjective. And while I think there is some value to be had in objectively reviewing a game, Mm. I kind of ultimately think that's boring, right? Because I don't know what you get out of that. If everyone is just objectively judging the merits of a game and how it's put together that for me is like a tech analysis interest yes no art there yeah 100 like i don't get much out of that i would rather know how someone personally thought about something and what their individual take about it is because that to me is is more interesting and it's kind of why I like talking about games you know mm. we can talk about I don't get me wrong I love you know Joseph Anderson style videos that do break down the kind of granularities of how a game is made in terms of its uh, response time to the mechanics the frames that are being mm. dropped and all of that stuff but I'd Digital rather have a, stuff yeah, digital foundry stuff. But I, I value the conversation so much that, you know, say me and you have mm-hmm. when we approach a game like uh, Ghost of Tsushima, for instance, that we both love, but we love it for completely different reasons. And we had completely <laughs> different experiences. Like those are the conversations that I kind of uh, value mm-hmm. 
um, more. And I know that there's a lot of pushback against this from video game fans who kind of want reviewers to be objective, but I just think... I, just, I think the art of criticism would be less if, if all reviews were just the, the exact same. And it's even then, I don't even think there is an objective way to even analyze a lot of video game systems because mm. they're so open to interpretation uh, in, in, in regards to what people like or even expect out of certain genres and mm. styles of games. No, that's true. I think it has, for me, it has to be everything. It has to be a mix of those things. My overall criteria, my overall approach, if I'm reviewing something, is what does it feel like they were going for and what does it feel like they achieved? And there's a mix of stuff. I remember old GameSpot, old GameSpot reviews back when Jeff Gersman and stuff was still at GameSpot. Uh, back in the day, were well, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, they would have a review system that was, you know, graphics, sound, um, whatever the categories, and then reviewers tilt. So it was like, you're trying to aim objectively. Like how well is this visuals of this game for a certain, you know, for the time? Um, or whatever and then reviewers tilt and it was like they had this mathematical formula Gersman's talked about this over the years where if you love if you personally love the game oh, I love this genre or whatever you could review tilt it as a 10 and then but it would be it might be a it might look like hell it might be really buggy the technical performance might be terrible but your reviewers tilt would still bump it up and it would still be recommendable um, so your review still has like agency in that score I think that's interesting they moved away from that over the years but for me like it's an overall thing I, I agree with you if it was entirely objective everything would be a digital foundry review and it would just be does the 3d model move forward when you push the button can you shoot someone when the gun fires etc that's boring i do think though that going entirely subjective um doesn't work either if someone's just like well i love this genre or i love anime so i, I gave the dragon ball game a 10 out of 10 like yeah there has to be a mix and for me it's finding that mix that that is why those conversations are so interesting um and i think you can always tell when a review hasn't factored in like what would be a more objective measure of just sort of like the technical performance of something. And um, like Call of the Lamb, I love, but that game runs like hell on the Switch. It's like 10 frames a second, especially in some of the later boss battles. Like I'm one boss battle off the end and the second last one that I just fought was abysmal to fight. It was like, I was barely able to track what was going on. And so I think it always has to be a mix of stuff, but I think there's a worthwhile metric in going like, this game is responsive, it performs very well. They were yeah. trying to write a story about grief and grievance and there's a level of maturity there that comes across. They don't fumble the final scenes or whatever it is. Like, you can argue that the fumbleness would be a subjective measure, but it's like, you know, I think that they walk the line. And so for me, there's always a way of saying, like, we need to establish quality. We need to say that like, this is a five-star product or whatever it is. And I think it has to be more than the individual. Personally, I think you want to hold it up more because it is a collective work. Um, or like, I just think like as an art form, it deserves to be held up more than just, I like this. It's like, no, no this is, this is very well made, like a structure, like a piece of art. Like it's, yeah. it's that thing that I'm striving for in terms of a criteria. No, I get that totally. And I would agree with most of what you said there as well. Like, it's definitely not like a maxim. I'm not saying like objectivity mm. should be banned from reviews <laughs> or anything like that. Because like you said, there are certain baselines that do need to be discussed to, you know, kind of analyze whether a game is, you know, hitting the goals that it's set out to achieve, mm. how its gameplay stacks up against similar games in the genre, where it falls down in terms of bugs and technical issues. Like you said, I just, I want to go back to what you said at the beginning. Like, mm. I don't want uh, a, just a product review. I do need no. something more. I do need the reviewer's kind of own interpretation of the story and its thematics and stuff like that. Like, because I do find a lot of value um, in that stuff. I definitely don't want to just be, uh, when I talk about subjectivity, you know, be discussing it in terms of, oh, a, a review that's written like, oh, I like this because yeah, exactly. I, I like these things. That's not what I'm getting at at all. I'm just no. talking about kind of a more subjective interpretation of. Uh, game design in general like you know my favorite 
video essayists always kind of have their own unique takes on, you know, a set of mechanics. You know, I've been watching a lot of Dark Souls retrospectives recently, yeah. and so many of those can just boil down to someone going, oh, Dark Souls has a stamina meter and it works like this. But I would prefer it if that was in there, mm-hmm. but the focus of the review or the analysis was, this is how it impacts the feel of the game, which mm-hmm. is obviously way more subjective. And this is how it impacts like the atmosphere of that game and how does it inform other mechanics or features that it might not have been intended to inform, but how does it have that knock-on effect? I just mm-hmm. think that's, for me, that's the kind of stuff that I gravitate no i would i I would massively back that i think as well like when we're reviewing stuff i think uh, i just talk about myself like when i'm playing through something i'm fully aware of i like this but the average person might not i like this thing but it probably wouldn't land for you know if you're brand new to video games or whatever it is or brand new to anything if we're talking about art forms i'm always fully aware of my own tastes and what like the average person is into or what trends are into or whatever midnight fight express that script is largely terrible like it's just, I mean, you can, like I said, you can tell it's written by one dude. The guy's having a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with the script, but it's not something that I could hold up and be like, this is a well-written video game that you should go play overall and play it for the script, let's say. I think you have to have those twin mindsets. And I think that for me, the review coverage, the general coverage of video games or art in general um, that falls down is when they do sway more towards the subject and entirely subjective, entirely objective. Um, that's always been the thing that annoyed me because it's like I've encountered reviewers over the years that have just not got what we're talking about and have right. just said like, well, my favorite film is the best film of all time. And it's like, no, like that's, yeah. yeah, it might be, but like that's the core of the conversation. Like your personal love of something might be that quote unquote objective measure of a medium, which in itself I get can be an absolute uh, oxymoron. But I think that there are conversations to be had there of how well something is done and how much of yourself you're, you know, uh, seeing in that product or whatever. Yeah, totally. And I think like the best reviews, which often are not mine, uh, manage to like (laughs) blend the two, like, you know, really well and present a subjective opinion, but don't present it as being like an objective metric. Mm. Like you said, you know, it's like people, you know, again, this is just random example, but you know, if someone said, uh, I don't like this mechanic, therefore this mechanic is, you know, like bad and broken. Yeah. If someone says it's broken because they don't like it, then mm-hmm. that's kind of like definitely. Because I'm always like, how? I'm always like, why don't you like it? How is yeah. it broken? Like, you know, like, like, vocalize this thing you're clearly like latching onto. Totally. And that's, that's where I do find things more interesting. And, you know, like some of my favorite reviewers, I never agree with, but I mm-hmm. find value in their opinion because they explain it really well. And, and they might say that they don't like a mechanic for X, Y, and Z reasons, and they might not. I might not necessarily agree with that, but it might be a part of the game that I never thought about, and I still find it, uh, you know, v- valuable in that way. And mm-hmm. that's kind of just I like that uh, difference of opinion. You know, even, even when it comes to like movies, you know, I never ever agreed with Roger Ebert on anything <laughs> uh, when he used to do reviews, and I still don't agree with like someone like Mark Kermode a lot of the time. But I Same. like hearing their opinions because yes, they bring their own biases to those reviews Mm -hmm. but it's they're still really valuable and there's still a lot of universalism within uh the subject that they bring to those kind of uh, critiques. Yeah, yeah, I would massively back all that. I'm going to throw in, and uh, we had a question from Jack Asbury who says that YouTube that they follow uh, when it comes to game reviews says that they'll usually be done by people who are already fans of the games. Is there any truth to that? Um, now, the link that um, uh, Asbury sent across was to a Luke Stevens video on Deathloop. It was him revisiting Deathloop um, and just talking about you know whether it's a 10 out of 10 and whether it's as good as people say it is, etc. Um, but yeah, Stevens' whole thing is that that assumption, I don't know if it's, maybe it's based on like actual conversations with reviewers and stuff, that 
idea of um, someone like IGN allocating a review to someone who is already a fan of said dev or said franchise, said IP, and they are already quote unquote fanboys, therefore they would give it a higher review. Um, I would have to, I would have to hope that's not the case. That's certainly not the case. The how we would allocate a review. There's definitely some tilt in going, you have history with these mechanics, you like this franchise, but it only works, you're only on staff, you're only able to do this if you adhere to the stuff that we just said before, where you're not just going, this is a five-star product because I like it. Like, there has yeah. to be more to it than that. And um, for me, the proof is always in that pudding. So for me, it's it would come down to the re- the review itself, their ability to review something. Um, I don't think it's as simple as, as the way that Stevens lays it out. Although I get, because he literally says it would make sense to do it that way because you already have a bunch of fans for that thing give it to the dude that loves anime for the new dragon ball game i've been watching a lot of dragon ball by the way so i'm mentioning <laughs> dragon ball um but yeah i think that like it like he says it, it would make sense but i would i would have to hope that's not the case we certainly don't just go you like this you'll like this go do yeah. you know give it a five star thing that's not it there, yeah. has to, there has to be it the art form deserves a lot more than that Totally, and I don't think, you know, again, I can't speak for other outlets, but even if you are, say, a fan of the franchise, I don't think that predisposes you necessarily to uh, like and certainly not love a game just no. because it's part of that franchise. You know, if I, anything, I'm, you'll I'm be sure, more critical. Exactly, say. yeah. I'm sure me and you both have had games uh, that we were looking forward to um, and end up ended up reviewing mm-hmm. that we were disappointed by and ended up giving a score Horizon lower than what we thought we were going to do yeah horizon forbidden west i remember getting far cry 5 was one of my first reviews and i was looking forward to that so much because i was a huge far cry fan Mm -hmm. and i thought it was going to be you know a great game and i think i ended up giving it like three and a half out of five Mm -hmm. and a lot of people didn't like that in the comments they were like (laughs) you're saying it sucks and i'm like no it's pretty good but if Um, you've gone it's a five-star game i love far cry you love far cry you'll love this one they go oh there's nothing to that you've just you're a fanboy just like you know yeah. Oh yeah, we we apparently get paid by Sony every time to do reviews. <laughs> and Let Nintendo and Xbox and whoever's in vogue at the time. I would be doing this podcast on an island if we got paid by Sony <laughs> to do those reviews. Uh, but yeah, obviously there is an element of truth to what Stevens is saying, I think, in that obviously people who are fans of certain games or are excited for certain games will maybe try to get the review for them. Mm. But the review process is much more level-headed and much more multifaceted um, than that. And even then, it's not always the case. You know, you and I have both reviewed games that we had no prior connection with. You know, I reviewed A Way Out, for instance, Mm -hmm. that I kind of just came out of nowhere. Even Returnal was a game that I only picked up because we needed someone to review it and the offer came in and I was going to buy it anyway, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, primed to love it. And I ended up giving that game like, you know, four and a half stars. I was so glad you did that, by the way, (laughs) because I I did not have the capacity to beat that game in a review time frame. I, that's, you say Saved me on that day. I, <laughs> hey, uh, couldn't have done Scott Telford, you saved me because I again I ended up loving it. You know, you it's uh, it, I think there's a lot of assumptions, not necessarily from Luke Stevens, just mm. from people who don't do reviews that you know uh, we kind of you know love getting the review codes and bump up the scores <laughs> to keep people happy and whatnot. Mm. But it's just like it's it's just way more level headed. It's way more <clears> of a job and i yeah. don't think i can't remember really the time i was approaching a game as a true fanboy i think like the closest i've come to that is the last of us part two but even Elden then Ring like you it? said because uh, i didn't review it review oh no just like getting games to review was mm. the, probably the last of us part two but even that i for me personally and again can't speak for anyone the fanboyism in those regards often like you said makes you more critical i'm because my expectations are so high i'm kind of more open to being disappointed in that way and having that come through 
in the review. I don't know. It's a. Uh, I, I just think reviewing games is so much more complex than people maybe imagine it as, yeah, as well, being I mean, excited to get something and then writing a good review because you're riding that excitement, you know? Mm-hmm. There's all, I mean, the thing is that, yeah, that we could do a whole podcast on the reality of doing reviews, whether it's the time frame side of it, whether it's like, like you said, if we just went in there and gave everything five stars, I forget the name of the website that used to always give every album five out of five. Um, and they were just on every poster. They were, cause it was, it gets you out there. Like you say something's great, then the PR wants to put it out there. And let's, I guess that's appealing to some outlets. We've never done that. I remember when I said Mafia 3 was brilliant. I loved Mafia 3. I remember the first time I played Mafia 3, went through it and I was like, oh my God, this is the next Vice City. This is the next, and I stand by. I always thought that game nailed a sense of place like no other open world game has done since that original GTA 3D trilogy. It's why I gave Mafia such a high score. And then that blew up loads. And we were like, what culture was on the Super Bowl? Uh, montage <laughs> thing that year because it was obviously 2k going like here's this incredible score in a sea of other six out of tens and seven out of tens so it blows up that way there's a whole wing of gaming journalism that um can feed into that if you want it to and um, like i said we've not done that um but i think that's yeah that's like an interesting facet of it as well but the turnaround stuff um here's this game code you've got two days your life is this game go turn it around like i was playing final fantasy 7 um the remake until four in the morning and then recording the review at 10 a.m um, things like that happen too. So it's like there's a lot more to it in that regard. I was going to say, I, I will say as well, and I, I, I'm not sure I necessarily should say this. I don't know mm. if it'll damage my credibility, but I think <laughs> for me personally, more often than not, we get games through that I'm not actually bothered about, and I actually have to do the opposite and get in the headspace of, you know, the reviewer mode rather than someone who doesn't really care about the new Saints Row. And I have to, like, you know, get in the zone and be like, no. Sure. Yeah, like, let's come at this game completely neutral uh, without any of these kind of pre-biases that I'm bringing to the table, and let's analyze it. I think that's why I played so much of Saints Row in the end, Mm. because I was like, look, I don't want to just write this off from what I've seen in my experience with this franchise. I need to give it a shake. And it just so happened to be that that game (laughs) was was bad anyway, you know? was bad. But well... Um, I was going to say there's one thing that I, I would never do is like it's because I it's, everything is case by case especially when it comes to reviews and I think if something was coming to an end it's the final installment of a trilogy I would never give that to someone who hadn't played the other two like that yeah. would be one of the things where I would draw a line and be like you do need to have story experience you do need to have certain expectations because they do almost objectively factor into what this thing needs to be um, which is the culmination of a story or whatever it is so I think that can be factored in as well totally. um, but because there's so many for me so many reviews or even game directions Mass Effect 3 EA were out there going it's the perfect place to start and look at all these flashbacks we've put in and it's the you know if you want to dive in do it now and everyone was just going no it's not this is meant to be for the fans it's the final thing and like, not like you can't start on three but why the hell would you it's the thing that you said earlier about like why would i start on season four of a thing yeah. um without the rest of it so yeah i think that there's a lot of nuance to that stuff um having now done this collectively for like almost 10 years like nearly both of us have at this stage um oh. those things do crop up quite a lot but there's a, there's always a way to logically think it through that what's going to yeah. benefit the the audience yeah yeah totally and i will say as well as a kind of final thing there have been mm. so many uh well at least a couple of times that i think of off the top of my head where a game review has come in for something that i'm really excited for and i've opted not to yeah. review it because like like we like we've said before you know sometimes reviewing the thing that you are really wanting to love uh, aren't the ideal conditions anyway. No. So you're not just going to like play that and not waste it on a review, but you want to be in a certain headspace for it. And you don't necessarily want to play it with your, that, that kind of like review cap that you bring to games, that kind of more measured approach. Well, Sometimes you just want to experience something as a fan and mm-hmm. the way to do that isn't 
reviews i don't like think at all like a tv show over time because i think if we did if we had to crunch elden ring into the two week period or one week period that a lot of reviewers were given i would have still loved it all those objective measures all those different conversations would have happened but it wouldn't be the same thing that we had where we got through it at our own pace we discovered all those secrets we weren't trying to hit a deadline um i've long said to anyone that i talk to in real life that like, yeah reviews are fun it's cool getting stuff early but there's just as much fun in the post-launch conversation stuff as everyone plays through it at the same time because there's an isolating factor to reviews as well like you were playing through last of us part two like it was only you and so you were hitting all those story beats and you couldn't tell anybody about them we didn't want to know because it was spoilers and so there's all that side of it too so yeah like i said we could do a whole podcast i think we've just done 20 minutes on it but um (laughs) we'll uh we can always revisit this stuff but i would um i would hope that most outlets are doing better than just you're a fan of x go play x there has to be um that might be the the entry point that might be the supposition but i assume that there's more to it overall because for me there just has to be otherwise yeah what are we doing yeah man and I think, you know, you know, I want to, again, we're, we're kind of like in this between space, right? Because mm. we work for a company, but we also work on YouTube and it's mm. kind of like just us, uh, maybe more independent than some of the other big companies. But mm. I think, I don't think there's much of a difference between, you know, your favorite YouTuber who reviews games independently and people who work for a big site. I think a lot of people... Mm. You know, some some bad faith fans maybe out there kind of like demonize people who work for the big sites at IGN. And it's like, nah, man, like they don't have any kind of more inclination to necessarily like a game than, you know, a really independent YouTube or anything like that. You no. know, a lot of people are working within the same tool set and same mindset. And of course, there are going to be anomalies to that, but mm. it's not kind of a hard and fast thing of people who work for big company are more inclined to do something or have a certain mentality compared to, you know, the, the, the quote unquote proper independent reviewers because you know, everyone kind of has their own biases and influences and whatnot. Yeah, there's there's a whole, com- I mean, that's a whole thing. I remember um, when Jeff Gersman left GameSpot, which was over the Kane and Lynch review, because he absolutely right. shot all over Kane and Lynch. I think it was Kane and Lynch 1, um, and just said it was abysmal and terrible. And obviously at the time, they had a whole ad package running on the website for that game. So that led to a whole conversation between, um, I forget who, well, IO Interactive, and um, GameSpot's higher ups just going, why have you let this review go live? You're giving it like one star or two stars. And the review is very full on saying it's abysmal. Um, and we're paying you to advertise the game. This doesn't make sense. And so they had to have that whole conversation. I imagine that would happen quite a lot if like, because I mean, Jeff's talked about it loads where it's like, well, he just had to have that conversation with his higher up and be like, no, this game is not good. Or, I'm, I'm not going to say it's good. It's not a paid yeah. review. Um, those conversations would happen if, for example, we were in the middle of a sponsorship and we wanted to say something was terrible um that whole thing would would come up as as well like i said so much nuance to this stuff but those conversations would happen and you would hope that they would err on the side of what's best for the audience and the most honest thing to do which is what we've always done Anyway, next question from Stephen McCormack, who says, after the end of Better Call Saul has freed them all up, which cast member will be next to follow Michael Mando and Giancarlo Esposito and be the next Far Cry villain? My suggestion would be Rhea Seahorn. (laughs) I I could see that. I would love, I love Rhea Seahorn. I would take her in literally any production possible at this stage. Dude, man, I've seen, I've seen her go up against Tony Dalton in Better Call Saul with a ferocity. Yeah, yeah, Tony Dalton. I would absolutely love to see. Mm. I think like I think you should just go through this is my pitch to you, Ubisoft. Go through the entire cast of Better Call Saul. Mm. Start with Ray Seahorn, go to Tony Dalton, mm-hmm. and then go to Michael McKean who played Chuck. And oh, I think yeah. you can have some of the best uh, Far Cry villains ever. And then once <laughs> you're done with those three for Far Cry eight or nine, mm-hmm. I think you should get the guy who played Lyle in Better Call Saul. 
and make him a villain. Is he the guy if from you the, don't know who Lyle is, he's the guy from Los Polos Hermanos yes. who is like Gus Fring's younger <laughs> second in charge who gets the terrible jobs when Gus Fring is incapacitated and has to open and close and do all of these bad shifts. Mm-hmm. Get Lyle in there <laughs> and make him the villain. Lyle's the next Jesse. I think, yeah, you can't go wrong with almost anyone from Better Call Saul. I was going to say, I wish, I know this is Breaking Bad, but technically Walt does show up in um, Better Call Saul. Give Brian Cranston more villain roles like Breaking mm. Bad is the, kind of one of the only villain roles he's done um, and I remember when he was rumored to be Lex Luthor in the DC movies and obviously it didn't happen at all um, I would take him in some sort of megalomaniacal businessman pulling all the threads pulling the rug out from under you this was my plan all along whatever give me one of those roles for him I think he could really sell it he'd like he can do a little bit of scenery chewing and I think he, he loves being bigger than life like all the big yeah. Walt monologues um, I feel like he would nail that stuff um, I do think, yeah. like, sorry, just as a final thing, I do think it genuinely is only a matter of time until we see Tony Dalton pop up in a game, you yes, know, because I just feel be. like that guy has such a presence in that show. He's, you know, made such a splash for himself over the past couple of seasons. Mm. And I just think, you know, you get that presence in a game and you're on to a winner already. <laughs> Funnily enough, you know, the, the person mentioned, uh, obviously, Michael Mando mm. and John Carlo Esposito, but we also had Stephen Ogg, who was in yes. Better Call Saul mm-hmm. in uh, Grand Theft Auto V, of course, playing Trevor. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of good. And Jonathan Banks, who I was plays just Mike, not to forget Mike, yeah. was in Arkham Knight. So there's a lot of uh, good video game actors in Better Call Saul, just, is what I mean, I'm starting is, to realise. Saul, as a, as a character, the way Bob Odenkirk plays him and the way he was written, is very much a GTA character. Like, yes. it's, you know, he could be someone you would take missions from in a GTA. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of early parts of Breaking Bad that feel like GTA anyway, um, in season one and two, where you could just set it in that world. Um, to round things out, because we've done a nice, lovely, long podcast, um, we have a very quick Last of Us section because I said that we were, we were both playing it so we got a few little short questions for The Last of Us and um, specific stuff. First one from Dan. There's one section in The Last of Us that I'm intrigued about, the infamous basement section. No spoilers, but is it still as terrifying in 2022? No, I've not got there yet. Josh, is it? Does it land? Yes, it really does. <laughs> I was playing that particular section with headphones on, which I would definitely recommend. Mm-hmm. And even though you know what's coming, it was still uh, packed full of scares. I think that sequence and the fight with David, which I never yes. even used to like that much. Uh, are the it's really two... gamey. It's got all like it's like a Pac-Man level. Yeah, his his improved AI makes that so much more convincing. By the way, but those two sections in particular. Uh, definitely held up in the intensity department, I thought. That's cool. Next question from uh, V, who says, in Last of Us Part 1, uh, the new remake, rather, is there a Ratchet and Clank t-shirt for Ellie in the bonus menu? I know there's a Sly Cooper one and a Jack, Jack and Daxter one, and then this is all in caps, but is there a Ratchet and Clank t-shirt I need to know? Now, there is. I had a, a cheeky little Google for this, because I've not unlocked the bonus menu stuff yet, and I noticed there's a, there's t-shirts for everyone. There's Ghost of Tsushima, there's Returnal, there's every single thing. There's a, even a... Um, a uh, resistance one in there as well, which yes, might be a cheeky is. little hint that that franchise is coming back, as considering it's rumored already. If you like a PlayStation exclusive for a franchise, there is a good chance it is in there. And I'm going to say it, not mm. all of them are good, but some okay. of them are really, really uh, stylish. The Resistance one, like you said, is excellent. I mean, I'm never going to wear the Returnal one in the game, but I right. love that the Returnal is in there. Well, the we, Dreams. We said earlier on that it's very rare that we agree on anything, but we won't wear these skins because they don't make sense. There's no, no, there's no, like, I mean, maybe, you know, some stuff before 2013, before Outbreak Day, maybe Ali founds that, finds that shirt lying around, but the rest of it, no. He's the thing, Scott Telford, and oh. I couldn't remember if these were in the original game or the remastered. I'm inclined to believe they were, mm. but there are a few areas where you can see Jack and Daxter plushies um, littered around the environment. You can find an egg. So, 
Well, the, the actual models of Jack and Daxter are oh, in the game now. Oh, I think you can find now. Nate as well. Yes, so maybe they do exist in this world. So maybe um, you know Ellie's just wearing merch. You know, maybe look, if they're going to give me permission to wear a Jack and Daxter T-shirt, I will take that uh, that directive. Will you wear the Jack and Daxter goggles that Ellie can wear? Uh, hell yeah! Well, see, that feels like something she would wear. Like when she's been to the costume shop and everything, and the DLC and everything. Like yes, massively. Give give me more goggles in games. To be honest, I will take more goggles in vision modes. Don't know where I'm going with that, but I like goggles. <laughs> We've got a few more uh, quick Last of Us questions. One of them just saying, you know, why the hell didn't they put it on the PlayStation Plus service? I would I, I put this in here as just a reminder that me and you did talk about that on this week's wind up so just go back to the podcast feed we talked about the whole idea of the um, the money side of this is kind of dominating the conversation I did very quickly google to throw this in uh, Amazon's current best selling charts because Last of Us was at number one going into the pre-orders going into today and uh, in the UK store and um, it's dropped down to number five on the Amazon mm-hmm. best selling US chart it's down to number 16 so I wonder whether the reviews or whatever have affected that stuff but it is, it is interesting to um, keep an eye on that stuff considering just how much they're um, selling it for. And the last Last of Us question um, from Nathan Paxton who says, do you think Last of Us 1 Remake makes more sense if you factor in the PC release? Putting a 10 year old game on PC probably wouldn't have worked out well, it's maybe aged too much, but they can't remake the game and put it only on PC thus we have a PS5 version. Thoughts? I think that is definitely true. I don't think it's a coincidence at all because I think, you know, The Last of Us Part 1, for as much as I you know, maybe don't want it to be Mm. isn't a game for everyone you know it's a game for people who haven't played the last of us and it's a game for people who are hyper in love with the last of us (laughs) who just want it in the best fidelity possible Mm -hmm. like like i do and i think you know that's just kind of what we have to accept at this stage that people buying it full price and the people who are targeted to buy it full price are you know, like people who have never played it for PlayStation 5 mm. and people who will be buying it on PC. Because, yeah, I think they're right. You could put The Last of Us Remastered on PC, but it's going to be compared to, um, you know, similar games that are new. Mm-hmm. And it has a better chance of getting the widest possible audience, I think, if it can go toe to toe against those new games, which The Last of Us Part 1 definitely can. Yeah, I think it's, for me, it's like it. Like it's not that it gets completely bogged down in the monetary side of it, but I do see a Sony that are raising their console prices, charging £70 for something that I think initially um, was at least talked about being just like an upgrade to the like the original Last of Us or whatever, doing something like that, and now it's this sort of £70 upgrade thing. I think those are things to keep an eye on because Sony do have such market dominance right now. Um, and I think that's a whole other conversation, but it's not to say that you can't enjoy The Last of Us Part 1 um, and um, like everything that they've managed to do to it. And I think watching, um, we, mentioned, we mentioned Digital Foundry before, their new 50 minute video where they literally side by side everything and for as much as I don't want that to become all of gaming is massively helpful in this regard because they've gone in there and literally compared animation to animation literally what are you paying for Um, and that can be very very helpful if you really want to drill down on you know how fast you can aim now or how fast a character gets up now or whatever. 100%. I think, you know, I think it's incredibly valid to call Sony out for its pricing of this Mm. game. And I think it's incredibly valid to wait for a sale. I would definitely encourage you to if you can't afford it right now or don't even want to pay $70 for a game that you've already played. Like, Mm. that's so valid. However, I will go against the kind of criticism that it's just a cash grab or it's lazy because, you know, Mm. you look at that Digital Foundry comparison and you can see the work that has been put into this you know i saw some comments i don't know whether they were in good faith or bad faith saying that this game should have been like ten dollars twenty dollars because people (laughs) didn't have to write a script or do motion capture or anything like that and i'm like man if we get that granular then should every game without a story or script have to cost ten dollars like 
the thing. work that's gone into this is substantial, uh, but that doesn't mean you have to buy it full price. Absolutely not. But I no. just think we need to we need to recognize that both things can be true. A lot of work can have gone into it, mm-hmm. but that doesn't also mean that you have to feel compelled to buy it now if true. you want to wait for a sale because... By all means, man. For me, you would have avoided this entire conversation if um, you just put it on PlayStation Plus Extra, uh, or Premium, sorry, the top tier one, um, and you make it uh, one of the biggest advertisements for that service, um, or at least have a substantial discount on it. I think that would have been a nice middle ground. Um, But yeah, as it stands, the um, the money stuff, I guess we'll see. Today's the release date, Friday. um, We'll see what happens for the weekend sales and just see where the conversation is on Monday. So far, I think the initial um, reactions have been a lot more gameplay and visual focused. The monetary side of it kind of seems like it's gone to the side with people just kind of going well that's just what it is um, and we'll just see whether the, the silent majority respond in terms of how much they actually invest or not i think it's cost right i obviously you know touched upon the price in my review like mm. i opened and ended on it but i think why a lot of people aren't just making video reviews in regards to the price is because like you said the price is only going to go down yeah and these reviews kind of also need to be for people buying it right now but people who might be you know questioning whether to buy it in six months or a year time and they're going through the reviews and if that review is all about the price then it kind of becomes <laughs> invalidated as soon as that price goes down so it's True. not that you know reviewers like me don't think it's an important thing it's just that these reviews are crafted again going back to our review mm. discussion at the beginning to be more universal and to be longer lasting they're not just for right now they're yeah, for totally. you know the game's entire lifespan and should work for the game's entire lifespan in that mm-hmm. regard i think yeah and also a massive shout out to your review that's on the youtube channel i think the audio will be on the on the uh, podcast feed by now as well um and go, go listen to our uh, winder from earlier in this week that was only my first couple of hours with the game i'm now like five hours or something in i've just got to the high school stuff um and like i think once you start to you kind of have to put the money stuff to the side you can just enjoy it for what it is which is the whole point um and there's a lot to enjoy there but overall this has been the ubp a massive thank you to you josh brown for diving in and doing one of the best ubps we've ever done hey thank you for having me on Din- <laughs> don't say that don't say that too soon i don't believe that i think you're just being very generous look it's the end of the level you've got the highest score you've, you've done very well <laughs> I've got quantity in terms of time over quality, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a beautiful time. But yeah, massive thank you to all of you for sending in all your questions. This has been the entire Banner Podcast. I've been Scott Hilford, joined by Josh Brown. Always a pleasure, Scott Hilford. Always a pleasure to be heard by all of you, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.